Hey guys, before we start this episode, I wanted to talk to you about Type 1 Lifting. So Type 1 Lifting is a clothing line that proceeds of the shirts and tanks and everything else goes to the Children's Diabetes Foundation. So um, this all came about with me and seeing a five-year-old girl in the emergency department uh, that had a new onset of diabetes. So uh, just take a look at the website. It's www type1lifting.com so just check it out if you don't buy anything that's perfectly fine uh, I would just like for you just to take a look and just see what we have so like I said before www.type1lifting.com and guys I hope you enjoy the show What's going on, everybody? Welcome to the Type 1 Lifting Podcast. I have uh, an amazing guest. I've been kind of talking to him back and forth through Instagram for the past couple of years, and actually this is the first time we actually are talking to each other via video because, you know, face-to-face, -face, we can't do that right now. So uh, here is Brendan Schneider. How you doing? Hey, how's it going? Good, good. So how's, how's everything going over in uh, Tennessee? Uh, life is good, actually. I've moved. I'm in Kentucky now. Oh, that's right, um, yeah. Kind of been on my like U.S. tour lately, um, so I've been bouncing around. But I'm in Louisville, Kentucky. Um, but life has been good. Kentucky has handled this better than a lot of states have, um, in my opinion. So I think it's going well, and um, people I know are staying safe, which is good. Yeah. So are you? Is it? Is Tennessee one of the states that letting people like go out to like the gyms and all that um, stuff? So Tennessee has a little more opening. I don't know exactly what the rule state to state is. I know we gyms are closed. Basically the only things that are open are gas stations, hospitals, grocery stores. Um, I think that's about it. And yeah. then on Monday they're opening up uh, PTs, non-elective surgeries, stuff like that. Yeah. they. So I live in Georgia. So they opened up pretty much gyms, hair salons, like all this stuff. So it's, it's pretty interesting. I love to see like what happens. Yeah. That's a, I almost feel like Georgia, I think Texas might be opening up is like the, they're like the testing grounds of what <laughs> yeah. is going to happen here. Yeah. So it'll be interesting. I think, uh, our governors towards the weary side, which has paid off so far. So hopefully it continues to pay off. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, I, I would love to get into your diagnosis, uh, when you got diagnosed with type, uh, type one diabetes, cause actually I already know the story, but I, I want other people to know about it. Cause I actually listened to your, the Julie Fouché podcast that you're yeah. on. And so, yep. yeah, I would love to, you know, have you talk about your, your uh, diagnosis story. Yeah. So I was 11 years old. I'd actually just turned 11. So it was February of 2004. Um, we were on a family vacation in Canada so I grew up right near the border of Canada. So we would go on ski trips every February um, up to Montreblanc, which is just north of Montreal. And on the way there, so this is going to be like the very stereotypical part of the diagnosis story. The way there, it's like a three hour, three and a half hour drive. I went to the bathroom, I think like seven or eight times. Um, and growing up, we would go on long car trips all the time. So it wasn't this like new like you have to hold it kind of situation. Mm -hmm. um, I think that raised some red flags to my parents, but neither of my parents are medical. So you don't automatically think your child has some like major diagnosis or anything like that. 
Um, while we were up there, though, they noticed, you know, more bathroom trips. I was drinking constantly. Um, they neighbors who were with us actually it ended up being my doctor at the time. My pediatrician was with us, and my other neighbor, whose mom was a nurse, were on the trip. And my parents were like, "Hey, like we're noticing these things," and kind of the like flag, red flag went up, and they were like, "You guys need to go to the hospital. Like this is probably what it is." They had noticed I'd lost a bunch of weight. Um, I was never a super small kid, but I had dropped close to 20 pounds in like a three-month period. And so from the condo we were staying in, we went to this tiny little ER, not pediatric related. I have like blurry memories of what happened. I do know it was negative 40 degrees, which always adds to the uh, excitement mm. when you can't even stand outside. Yeah. And we go into the hospital, they check my blood sugar, you know, with a normal like finger prick. It just said high on it. So I think that was when it really set in for my parents, like this is going to be a road to go down. Uh, I still, the main thing I remember is because it's in military time, I remember the clock going like zero, 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 zero. And I thought it was the coolest thing in the world. Uh, meanwhile, I was like, my glucose was like in the 1300s. Dang. Um, so they, because we were considered like for, foreigners um, from like an international standpoint, they gave me some insulin, pumped me with fluids, basically told my parents, go back to the condo, load everyone in the car and go back home and go to a children's hospital there. So that's essentially what we did. We, got back. It was like six in the morning. We left both my siblings with my neighbors there because we, my parents didn't want to ruin their vacation. Mm -hmm. um, loaded the car up, drove back home. We were home for like an hour or so. And then when it was about 45 minutes to the biggest children's hospital there. And from there actually got put on like three bag system and got my number dropped correctly. Uh, they more so stabilized me in Canada and were like, you need to go back to the U.S. because the last thing you want is to go through this whole thing in a primarily French-speaking hospital. Yeah. And so they uh, they made the right move there. Now being in medicine, like seeing how they handled it, mm -hmm. it makes a lot more sense to me. Yeah. Um, yeah. But from the aspect to just be like, hey, we'll see you later. You don't know anything about what's going on. <laughs> Didn't yeah. make a whole lot of sense at the time. Mm-hmm. So did they admit you to like the ICU? Because the way, way when I used to work at the Children's Hospital, they admitted people, admitted the kids to the ICU for a couple of days. Or did they admit you for a couple of days? Or how did that work? Uh, so I was admitted. I don't know if it was the ICU. That's like the piece of the story that um, – because I don't remember moving rooms. Mm -hmm. But I think they may have had a specific like endocrine floor or a unit on the floor of the hospital that they admitted me to, but I was in for, I think it was three days and it worked out really well because the group, the endocrinology group that took me on were incredible and they had multiple people. Their diabetes educator also had diabetes. So he let my parents like drop insulin draw, and then they would like drop saline. They gave him a shots and then they would slowly, they got them to give me the shots before we left I didn't really do any of my own injections, glucose testing at the very beginning. Um, being 11, you're kind of in that 
like waiver point yeah. of you want to be independent, but you don't know how to be independent. So that took, I would say, probably close to like six months before I really started to take over some of myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but the group that had taken me on, the doctor was like super old school, but she actually retired like three or four years after that. Um, but she was super straightforward with my parents, which I think is what needed to happen. She was kind of like, you know, this could go horribly wrong or you can do this correctly and things will be fine. Yeah. And I lucked out that I had two parents that took her advice and, you know, we had our ups and downs like anyone does, but it, uh, they listened, they read up on it. They knew kind of front to back. There was this book they gave them that was like this thick. And I remember it had like a smiley face or something on the front. Um, and it was basically like written by parents for parents with diabetes. And it was like a thousand pages of like scenarios and what to do if this happens. And Very cool. I, I, I'd love to uh, be interested in that book if you remember it. So, Yeah, I think it's probably what, 15 years old now? Yeah. 16 years old? Yeah, it's probably on like his third revision or something like that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure I could find it. My mom likes to keep hang on to a lot of things. So yeah, nice. So is is there anybody else in your family that has diabetes, or is it just you, or like relatives, or I'm the first one. So I uh, got to forge this path on my own um, in that aspect. They like now that there's kind of some more research behind what could potentially be a cause. Um, I did have strep throat like six months beforehand. Mm-hmm. So I kind of followed that path that they're thinking with the whole viral illness, then causing the mutated cell to mutate and then autoimmune. Um, so from the sound of it, that's what I'm guessing it happened. If I was just predisposed and eventually it was going to happen. It just happened to be then. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I mean, that's, that stinks, but that's crazy that like, you know, for me, when I got diagnosed at like 34, just like a month before my 35th birthday, I was yeah. trying to remember, trace back of like when I was sick. And I think I'm, I like, I, like you had strep throat. I may have like a sore throat or something like that. And I don't really yeah. go to the doctor or anything like that. And I just, probably that's how it happens. So it's super interesting how that stuff happens. Yeah. And it's always, you know, you, I probably knew something was wrong like months before, but you it's really easy as a person to like be like oh it's got to be this and like move yourself on even at you know the young age of 11 you're like i don't want to tell my parents i'm going to the bathroom yeah yeah because uh, that's again it's like the age where they during the week wouldn't see me a whole lot because i was at school and then came home and did my homework and then on the weekends i would go play with my friends or i was playing sports so the like extended period of time took a vacation because they didn't they saw me that entire time whereas before kids are so busy so it just gets lost in sort of the stream of things yeah so how how was how was playing sports when you were younger and like the diet in, in having diabetes in like were your parents there like pretty much all the time or like how did how did it work when you were playing sports so it sort of evolved as time went by when i first was diagnosed i was rowing like in a boat rowing um somewhat competitively i like to say that my high school athletic career like i didn't peak until college is kind of my like i was just kind of going through just to do sports i wasn't horrible but i wasn't the best Mm -hmm. um but there was a rower on the canadian national team 
who had diabetes and my mom reached out to him and luckily he answered the email. This was the early days of email also. Um, and he kind of gave her the layout of, you know, you're going to have higher blood sugars during the activity because of glycogen dumping. And then you'll drop after, which is pretty much still to this day, exactly what happens with my numbers exercise wise. So at the beginning, they were super strict about like making sure my coaches had glucagon and making sure like everyone was ready in case something happened. And then as time went on and I got into high school and was doing my own sports and kind of managing my own diabetes, they sort of let me go Mm -hmm. in, you know, telling people and make sure my coaches knew. And I'm sure there was some behind the scenes talk that I never saw, but for the most part, all my friends knew what to do. You know, if I started talking crazy, they'd be like, Hey, you know, go test or, yeah, because I'm definitely, I have a few pretty stereotypical, uh, low symptoms. So it, people, when they're around me enough, start to figure out that I'm talking crazy or I start sweating or I'll do strange things. Yeah. And it's usually consistent. Like every time, since I was in fifth grade, the same things have happened. Mm-hmm. So would you get mood swings at all uh, when you when you get like low or high? Or? I will get mood swings when my number's high more so than when I'm low. I will sometimes sort of, I don't want to say get combative. Like if I'm really low, I'll like fight or flight almost. Mm-hmm. Um, typically, it's like an attempt at flight, I would say. Every once in a while, it's probably fight. But you don't have like the wherewithal to like really fight back yeah it's sort of a strange i almost try to explain it to people as like the out-of-body experience where like i know what i should be doing but i just can't do it mm-hmm. um so i get that i don't get super angry i more so get quiet i would say when my number gets high um i'm more so like internalize rather than externalize when my number's high yeah um but low i have more issues with lows than i do highs in daily life so that's sort of been my i have more information on that yeah yeah for me it's mainly like high then usually on sundays i get low because i'll over take too much insulin for like the pancakes because we usually eat pancakes like every sunday just like for like a whole family thing and obviously sometimes i take too much and it just drops and then like like we were ready to go out someplace and you know i'm like my wife's like are you okay and i'm like you gotta drive and i gotta eat something so it's it's just it's like you know, I, yeah, I could tell when I'm low or sometimes like I don't think I'm low and then I'll just see like one one of them I just noticed is my eyes like skip. So if I go from like yep. right to left, it'll go from the right and immediately skip to the left and it, then I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm like really low. So I got to get it checked out. Yeah, I'll get um like my easy check. So it was a friend of mine actually pointed this out a while ago and I never noticed, but my pupils get really big mm-hmm. when I go low, which is probably where the vision comes in. And so I'll see like circles of light. So that was, that's kind of the like telltale sign. If I look at a light and I look away and I can still see the bulb that there's like no questions asked. I'm low. Yeah. That's interesting. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. So um, when, when in college, did you have like any like burnout phases or anything like that? Or what was so college? I think I almost kept myself too busy to have too much of a burnout um, in school. Like I was nursing major and then also played rugby 
for the school. I was training, like started getting CrossFit then. I'm trying to think what else. I worked at like on campus. So pretty much I would like wake up in the morning, leave my house, maybe come back during the middle of the day, but I was sort of busy all through the day. And mm-hmm. it had been ingrained in my life enough that I stayed on top of it for the most part. But that being said, you know, you are a college kid. So it, uh, weekends, things like that. During the week, I was pretty focused on what I needed to do, um, but definitely lived somewhat of the typical college lifestyle in the uh, weekends. But I lucked out big time because being on sports team, all the guys on my team knew that I was sort of the one to look after. Mm -hmm. So they weren't all like on top of me about everything, but they were very specific about, you know, knowing where I was, making sure I was all right. So I always kind of had backup in that standpoint. Yeah. I think it would have been very different had I not had good roommates and not had uh, sports like team members to Mm -hmm. be on top of it. Yeah. Yeah. I I, I love the team aspect because like, for example, for you, you know, you always got to be on the lookout for like other people. Like I had other people that had like disabilities too. And I was, we're like, all we're always like watching out for them or like even on, even like on the, during the game, we let them let the refs know like, Hey, you know, this person is this or this. Yeah. And so, and even, even the, my, my lacrosse team I play for now, they're always like watching out for me on the field. Yeah. So, so it's uh that part. I mean, there was times where like my coach always had glucagon and juice boxes. I would be like running down the field. He'd throw me a juice box. Because especially, like, with rugby being 80-minute games, usually I was good for, like, the first 50 to 60 minutes. Mm-hmm. And it was the last 20 minutes that if something was going to happen, it was going to be then. Yeah. Um, once the body starts to hit that, like, fatigue phase. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it was interesting sort of navigating through because rugby is one of those sports where I couldn't wear my pump. So I was kind of balancing the highs with making sure I wasn't going low. And the last thing you would run around and with a pump on. So yeah. So what what what's your like a normal level for you? Just like pre like pre game at all or? I usually typically it's around like one sixty one seventy would be like ideal, and then I would especially in college like sip Gatorade mm-hmm. throughout. Like I kind of figured out like forty carbs mid game was sort of my like sweet spot. So I'd make sure I finished half by halftime and then the other half in the second half. Um, and I had like a special water bottle like set aside for me. Yeah. But that tends to be now like 160, 170. I'm in a good spot. I have to look at my training for the day to sort of decide exactly where I need to be. Um, but that and then to this day, I'll like sip on a shake throughout training to just keep myself level. Mm-hmm. So is that a carb? Is it like a carb shake with like protein or like uh, electrolytes? Yeah. So I actually, this week or last week started sort of a cutting phase. Um, with this time at home, things are a little more controlled than they would in normal life. Mm-hmm. So my coach and I decided now's the time if we're going to lean out to do it when I have more control over my schedule versus less. So that involves mid workout 40 carbs and 25 protein 24 protein and some beta alanine and then i'm a big coffee drinker so 
I just put some coffee, iced coffee in there and just sort of sip it throughout. And it's been, it's worked out really well. Yeah. Awesome. And then I, I don't necessarily have that post-workout high carb spike that I'm chasing with insulin. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm always, I'm, I've been working on that cause I usually get out like when I finish working out, I'm usually like 260, like, yeah. and I'm just trying to find ways to you know, not be high, but lately since working, working out from home, it's been a heck of a lot easier. My numbers have been like amazing. Yeah. That, uh, the stress factor is huge. Yeah. Um, and I've tested what your body does under stress probably more than the average person Mm -hmm. should. Um, so from working at the hospital and things like that, there's a lot of interesting like spikes and then you plummet. And so I think, now is a good time to test with things because we've cut out a lot of those factors that would normally affect the numbers. Yeah. So what made you get into nursing? I think it's sort of a two pronged reason. So initially I thought I wanted to be a teacher. I was like dead set. I was going to be a gym teacher because you know, that's what cool people do. Mm. And so I, my freshman year was undecided in my major, just started taking classes. And then I think from having to know like a base level of medicine, being a diabetic, like I think a lot of people with diabetes don't give themselves credit on like how much you actually know because it's just daily life. Mm -hmm. But it's a lot of things that normal people have no idea. And so I think that played into it a little bit. And then my grandfather's a pediatrician or was a pediatrician. Um, and he, see, he worked until he was 78 or 80. Wow. Um, I guess he was a little younger than that, probably 75 when he was done, but longer than most people work just because he loved it. So growing up when we would go to their house, he would, you know, always have stuff at home. And this is back in the day where, you know, drug companies give you all the free stuff and, um, things were a little bit different. So I think I was just always sort of around it. And when I started laying down, like I noticed I was really like science, more so biology related. And I was like, well, I want to work with kids. I knew that. But then it was a matter of laying down in what way do I want to work with kids? And when, as I got interested in medicine and biology and I was like, wow, like I've lived this life why can't I then translate this over to other people's lives? And so that was sort of the path that led me there. And I lucked out that where I went to school had a somewhat newer nursing program. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was able to get into the program without having to add an extra year or anything like that. Um, and then ended up with my bachelor's in nursing by yeah. the end of it. Nice. So, so what, what floor are you working at right now? So right now I'm on the IV team. So we, I told myself, I'm sort of like mindset wise. I like always when I start something, be like, I'm going to have something that I'm like, is my thing within this. And so when I started out, I was like, I'm going to get really good at IVs because I did one. I liked the challenge, sort of my competitive mindset of like, I'm going to do this once and it's going to be done, um, set in. So I originally worked on, it was like a med surge, but we specialized in endocrinology and sort of the diabetes aspect came in there. And and we had GI and all sorts of other things. From that floor, I then went to an ER 
So I worked at Lavonder Children's Hospital in Memphis in the ER. Got a lot more experience there just because of the fast pace and things like that. Um, so then when I moved, I moved from the ER. When I moved to Louisville, I worked in the ICU, which was also pediatric, for a little over a year. And then made the switch over to the IV team about four or five months ago. Mm-hmm. So I've done, I've had my hands in a little bit of everything, um, which I think that's helped build sort of exactly what I want to do. Yeah. So do you think that like using that, like, do you guys use an ultrasound machine when you guys do IVs or how, do, how does Sometimes it work? Sometimes we do. Yeah. Okay. So how do, do you think you've gotten like a heck of a lot better doing IVs or finding like different ways of getting the, the uh, needle into the vein? Yeah, so it um, it's interesting in the effect of like as you get more comfortable with it. When I first started, I was super scared because you know you are causing pain and kids like to fight back and you know parents are nervous because their kids yelling. And so as you get comfortable, I think that's where the sort of flip happens. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, when you have this competitive mindset of like I'm going to do this once. And I'm going to get it. You start to take time and planning beforehand. Granted, there's been a lot of times where it's like someone hands you something and they're like, Hey, we need this right now because you know, we have kids coding, things like that, that you don't t- have the time to really plan. Mm-hmm. So I have set spots that I look when it's a matter of this needs to happen right now. When I have a little more time, I can kind of check for some weird places um, and the other beauty of kids is you get to do a lot of weird things that they don't get to do in the adult world, like start IVs and scalps on babies and the places like feet and things like that, that you don't really get to do in adults. But from that aspect, the other night, I started an IV upside down. So it's a, uh, because we had a kid, you know, flipped over prone mm-hmm. to help with his lung exhalation. Yeah. And so it was a matter of like all your good veins are on the bottom side and yeah. you can't flip them back just to start an IV. So yeah. I was upside down on the side of the bed. Wow. That's super interesting. Yeah. I've never seen it. I've never seen an IV done on a scalp before. So, I mean, yeah. I, cause I was working when I worked at the children's hospital, mainly be like feet, arms, maybe neck, but like never, never seen a scalp one. Those are like super yeah. interesting. Yeah. Cause little babies, if you notice, they usually have a huge vein like smack dab in the center of their head. Mm-hmm. And people forget that a vein's a vein. It doesn't matter where it is. And typically babies are more mad about being held down than they are about actually getting stuck. Mm-hmm. So if they can't see what's happening, they tend to be calm and don't even move. Because I've had, you know, perfectly we'll say well babies, they were sick enough to be in the hospital, but um, neurologically they knew exactly what was going on. And you sort of get to the head of the bed and you're behind them so they can't see above you. And it'll go in. Sometimes they'll like fall asleep in the middle of it. (laughs) Um, Kids are wild in the aspect of like the amount they can handle and bounce back from to me is exponentially higher than the adult population. Oh yeah, I, I completely agree. They they are super resilient. So yeah, yeah. So do you have any uh, aspirations of being like a diabetes educator or going to school, going back to school for that at all? Or there was a time like when I was kind of on the fence about what I wanted to do. 
I think right now my goal would be to get my master's and then eventually get my PhD and be a professor. I think that there's limited number of male pediatric professors in nursing schools, probably nationwide Mm -hmm. from everything I've seen. I had a pediatric professor who was a male and it's sort of as a male, one of the few male nurses like draws you in because you are a minority in the hospital setting. Um, And it's just by nature that that's how it's happened. There's a significant amount of male nurses compared to, you know, back in the day. Mm -hmm. But I think that showing that you can work in pediatrics is a good thing because a lot of the patients we see, unfortunately don't have, that sort of male figure in their life or they don't have a positive male figure in their life. Yeah. And it's an unfortunate like reality of what goes on in the world. So if you can be granted on the IV guy, so I'm probably not the positive role model in most people's life, but <laughs> it, uh, for the most part, like if they have someone who, you know, shows they genuinely care about them and, you know, their families, they're also, so if you can sort of help with that role too, I think, I don't know what it will pay off in the end because I haven't seen a lot of these kids when they get discharged, I don't see them again, mm-hmm. but I think it would pay off for them in the long run. Yeah. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. When I was, when I was in the ER, I would always like welcome like the new onset diabetes kids, you know, yeah. and let, let the parents know. You know, and like like I said before, but like my this is the reason type one lifting came about is from like a five year old girl, and the mom thought it was a death sentence. And so I pretty much I was talking to them, saying that you know everything's gonna be fine. You know it's gonna be a little challenge in the beginning, and I just thought I needed to do more. And then you know lo and behold, the shirt company came. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's so- uh, I I get that call a lot of like, can you come talk to this kid or mm-hmm. stuff like that. So it sounds like. It, uh, when you work in a hospital and you have diabetes, that's what happens. Yeah, yeah. They, they was some some kid called asked me if I was like a diabetic liaison or something like that, and I'm like, no, yeah. no, no. I'm just, I'm just some dude, just like some diabetic, just wants to help out and just. If you have any questions, just let me know. So. Yeah, and then it uh, like I think T-shirts are like the best way of speaking, like in a general standpoint. Like, not everyone has someone who has type one. Yeah in their life, in their family. But if you're walking down the street with a shirt that, you know, exemplifies what that is, it's not necessarily pinpointing yourself as like, Hey, everyone, I have diabetes, but it's sort of like, Oh, like reminds people that this is a thing. And, you know, it's also an area that needs support from the aspect of there's, I don't know if I'm the only type one, but I get like frustrated with type two. Mm-hmm. which I'm sure I'm not the only one, but yeah. everyone, you know, it's the, assumes they're both the same or it's a lot of the money goes that way because there are more people affected by it. But, you know, we're a little biased in the aspect of we want the money to go to, you know, our research, not theirs. Yeah. So what's the biggest, biggest thing that people ask you since you're a diabetic, like, like between like type one and type two? I get, I'm trying to think, like the most, the craziest one I've gotten is new diagnosis kid. I was working in the ER, you know, went in to sort of talk him through 
sort of what the next few months were going to look like. And the mom and dad were dead set on the fact that if they gave their kids cinnamon, they were going to be okay. Like they didn't need insulin. They didn't, they were like, we don't need that stuff. They were like, we'll just eat cinnamon and it'll all be okay. And so I had to very, have a very long conversation with them about, uh, although I don't think cinnamon's bad, it's not going to call like solve your problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but the other one, I'm trying to think what I get more than that. Occasionally it's the, well, they don't want to do shots. Mm-hmm. Like you get a lot of the, I'd say that's the hardest one of like, you know, well, I don't want to do that. And it's sort of that, like, there's, I don't want to do that either. Like if I could just not, you know, deal with needles, I wouldn't, but it's, that's, I get that one a lot of like, you know, you have to do this all the time. Like, how do you do it? And it's just like, uh, you know, you just, you do it because you have to. Yeah. Cause it's, I, cause uh, I, I like to live a little bit longer or, yeah. or you know, stuff like that. <laughs> it's uh yeah. So that's, I would say that's the most common conversation I have. Of, yeah. You know what, like, why do you have to do this so often? Or, you know, why do you do this? And it's sort of like a, that's where you have to lay it out in the black and white of like, if you don't do this, you're dead. Yeah. Like it's mm-hmm. the yeah. unfortunate, like certain pieces of it can't be sugar-coated mm-hmm. and I've learned that over time like I used to always tiptoe around like you can still be active and blah 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 and now I'm like you definitely can be active you just have to be smart yeah exactly yeah so um I kind of want to get into like the CrossFit space because like that's how like yeah. you and I actually connected so and you talked about like when you're playing rugby um you start you kind of started to get into CrossFit so and how how did you how did you first get into it and you know what made you keep going? There, so it was probably I'm trying to think. It was my sophomore year or my junior year. I was at like a family party and I saw some guy with a CrossFit shirt on. And this was when so I had lost a bunch of weight in high school right before going to college doing p90x and insanity mm-hmm. like the beach body yeah like sort of the story everyone has of like this is how i got into exercising yep and i love those because i like the aspect of like group led and you know everyone doing it together kind of thing mm-hmm. and then through that sort of research on google like a crossfit thing popped up and i didn't really understand it i like was on went on the main page and was like well that's just one workout like that'll take 15 minutes. Like I need, I was used to hour, hour and a half, stuff like that. And then I was at a family party, saw a guy with a CrossFit shirt on, asked him some questions about it. He was like ex-military, you know, explained sort of the competitive side of it. And so from there really researched it. I'm the type that when I hear something I like, I like dive headfirst into it mm-hmm. and learn everything there is. Um, so that, happened from there started a crossfit club at school and college because there was three or four other people that also did it and we were able to get funding and like buy nicer barbells and some pull-up bars and from there sort of took off and sort of end of college when i knew rugby was coming to an end 
I needed to fill that competitive void that rugby gave me. So it started out as just cross training for rugby. And then as rugby ended and I was like, I can't play rugby while being a nurse because I you know can't afford to break my face and break my hands anymore. Yeah. Things like that. So CrossFit filled that. And then from there, you know, got involved with competing and like competitive programming and then sort of built and had an opportunity to get my level one when I lived in Memphis and the owner of the gym there sort of offered, he was like, you know, I'll pay for it and you can work it off. And for me, who was working three days a week, you know, how am I going to fill the other four days? Yeah. I, I basically lived in the gym anyways, so I might as well somewhat get paid to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then from there progressed to when I moved here, got an opportunity to go on full-time coaching and PRN nursing and I figured now while I'm younger and can handle that, the constant physical activity, I might as well jump in because I probably won't have an opportunity down the road to get paid a real full-time salary and have benefits through a coaching job. Mm-hmm. So that was the, that's sort of the like long winded version of how I skipped my way through it. Yeah. So, so now since, you know, since you're coaching, what are like, how do you, how, what's your, what's your way of coaching like uh, other people at, from the clients at the, at the box? I think so it's progressed. So now that I've been coaching close to six months now, I think what my idea of what coaching was has transformed a little bit. Um, I had one idea when I was part-time coaching because I wasn't, I was doing just like a few hours a week. Mm-hmm to now being there basically all day. Like it's a normal, somewhat normal job hours. Um, I've learned sort of the difference between being a competitive athlete and what that programming looks like and mindset looks like to the, I want to work out or I want to lose weight. I just want to get healthy. So I try and meet, my biggest thing is meeting people where they are. Um, I think one of the best things that was explained to me was, unfortunately, as a coach, you can't want something more than the other person wants it. And sometimes you can help build that want, but people are going to push you away if you push them too hard. So you need, like, it's learning. If you have your competitive people who are like, I want to, you know, be the best. I want to work on things I'm bad at stuff like that you meet them up here but if you get someone who's nervous to be in the gym and sort of uncomfortable in their own body you've got to meet them with that confidence that you can get them there so i think it's very person to person how i approach the day so do you have any do you have any like any of the cues for like people with like certain lifts or anything like that that you can kind of like tell the tell the podcast world i think the biggest thing i've learned is one a lot of the lifts are uh, like core involved because you forget that if you loosen in the core like you're most likely going to lose the bar um and then the other thing was when olympic lifting was broken down for me as essentially you're just jumping off the ground like all it really is is if you can keep the bar as straight as possible and you can jump off the ground it the bar will most likely follow the path you need it to mm-hmm. Um, there's some little nuances in there as far as like clean and jerk versus snatch, but 
the talk I have with the most people is straight bar path, drive off the floor like you're jumping off the ground. And usually that's where it clicks because everyone knows how to jump because we've been jumping for our whole lives. Yeah. Forever. And most people know how to hold on to something. Mm -hmm. So it's just a really complicated way of jumping and holding on to something. Yeah. Um, And then my favorite burpee cue is essentially you're falling down and getting back up. Yep. I had this conversation last week and because everyone fears burpees because they're hard. You are usually out of breath when you get there. They don't help you get your breath back. And so I've described it to people as how many times have you fallen down and just stood back up and been fine. Mm -hmm. And so that was, that one's worked really well also. Very cool. Very cool. So now with you kind of like doing the remote coaching, how is that different? How has that been a little bit different compared to, you know, being in the box compared to like watching somebody on like a zoom conference meeting? It, so remote coaching is very interesting. It has been, so I've seen both sides because I'm also someone's remote athlete. So I've reached out to him a lot for input and sort of how to do it. Um, but along with that, it's again, figuring out where people are. So at this time where we're all working out from home, we all have different equipment. We all have different motivation because for some people, the only reason they worked out was because their friends worked out at the gym and their friends are there at the same time. Mm -hmm. And now that you take their friends out, like what, why are they doing it? Kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So reminding people why they got into it, how good they felt when they were having physical activity. And then also keeping people, we've noticed as a team that keeping our remote clients on schedule, it doesn't have to be exactly what they were on previously, but it has helped our number of people working out if they know. I used to work out at 4.30 in the afternoon every day. So I'm going to wake up at 8 a.m., be in bed by 10 or 11, sort of do what I need to do during the day, whether they're working their jobs remotely or if they work at the hospital, we have a bunch of people like that. Um, they're still working out at the same time. So mm-hmm. it brings some normalcy yeah. into that. Mm-hmm. And so I've been working with a lot of people on creating some kind of normal in this time where everything's abnormal. Yeah. Um, so that's been the biggest sort of challenge, but rewarding when you tell someone like, this is going to be what's going to bring you success. And then two or three days later, they're like, Oh, wow. Um, that, and I've wrote, I got a chance. I'm writing a program for one of our clients. So he was not super on board with the programming that was being written, which some people, because it's at home stuff, like some people are just bored with, certain at home movements and so they just need something a little bit different so i've gotten to practice we're on going into week four now so i'm writing his fourth week today and i think that's been good practice on sort of like what my style of programming from a coaching standpoint is and what i think is sort of important and what's paid off and he especially wants to build stronger shoulder strength so that's been sort of a bias that we're working through too on this time. Michael, cool. so what's what's your theory on like programming? Like, what do you like doing the most, or 
what do you like like adding like you could do like a cardio piece here strength or like what what is your way of programming so i like the setup of strength followed by conditioning but that being said i've thrown in for him one day a week we do a hypertrophy day so like old school bicep curls triceps um chest stuff because i think there's a few aspects of crossfit that i think have somewhat been forgotten and you know sort of those support muscles that you do get when you do movements like bicep curls and things like that will pay off and then i also have him once a week sprinting so i saw pretty significant not only just like strength boost but it's just the changing up of the environment in sort of in sprint work mm-hmm. so I have him doing one week he does run sprints. The next week he's doing rowing sprints because he luckily has a rower. And so we do like a lower body specific, upper body specific as far as the strength cycle goes. And then he has a hypertrophy day, sprint day, and then another sort of mix between upper and lower. Okay, very cool. On that fifth day. And then the conditioning sort of tossed in there based on what we had done for the strength movement, I'll look at, you know, volume, like he's gotten over that time in the strength to decide how much and what we need to hit in each conditioning piece. Okay. Very cool. So <clears throat> you said you, you're doing remote, you're do you're, you're getting remote coaching. So who is that with and uh, what is that like? So his name's Ben Skutnik. Um, he is involved with power athlete, But he also, this is sort of a side project, I would say, because he's not normally coaching CrossFit athletes. But he's getting his PhD at University of Louisville in exercise science. Mm -hmm. So from a knowledge standpoint, as like someone who what originally sort of attracted me to his style was I'm super like nerd it out about like the reasons behind and why we're doing what we're doing and you know different energy systems and things like that i think he somewhat has a higher intelligence well he definitely has a higher intelligence as far as programming and the human body goes but it has created sort of a different style of training while still doing crossfit and so we have done cycles that you would never see in normal competitive crossfit because I have very specific holes that needed to be worked on and then areas that didn't need to be worked on. So like raw strength has never really been a problem, Mm -hmm. but gymnastics and some of that like longer endurance piece is work. So we've worked on, you know, lactate threshold work and sprinting, like I said, and we've done a bunch of like, cycles of different hanging movements and things that like Carl Paoli and the freestyle program stuff that they do like true gymnastics things you would see in a gymnastics gym Mm -hmm. from the very basic level I'm sure there's five six-year-olds that could beat me in 90% of gymnastics movements but we're breaking it down that far to sort of build our way up Mm -hmm. very cool so how did you how did you meet him again so he was at our gym at Derby City CrossFit and when they first moved here. 
So he moved here around a year ago and I was sort of toying around with what program I wanted to use. And I had talked to him a few times about just general CrossFit stuff. Um, and he was basically, I was like, what do you think between, I was debating between DECA and at the time I was doing the Mayhem programming Mm -hmm. and the Mayhem programming was great, but the volume was destroying me because at the time I was working three night shifts a week and also trying to maintain normal life. Yeah. So I sent him the programs and he was like, well, how about you do this? And so he sent me this data analysis and it was a list of strength movements, uh, benchmark workouts, running times, all this stuff. And he, he was like, do these, you know, you can use old times on stuff you have done or if you haven't done them, do them. So regionals workouts, things like that. Sent him all the information and he was basically like, it's graded on like a, your regionals level on this stuff. Cause it's all sort of based on the old model of regionals, not sanctionals. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was like, this is where you're at a level where you could be competitive there. This is where you are lacking and you need to find something that's biased to these weaknesses. And he was like, you know, you can either go with one of these programs because they'll hit those things. Or if you want, you can come on as one of my athletes and I'll write for you and be specific to what my needs are. Cool. So do you, so I know, I know you have like a barbell and weights, but do you have anything else at all? Like, or how are you, how are you doing the gymnastics work, work it from at, from at home? So I've got barbell weights. I built a squat rack. Um, I did the like $50 DIY squat rack. Um, and then I built a, I have a back porch and there's, it's sort of, it's a double decker porch. And so I built a pull up bar between two of the supports. Okay. So I got like one inch galvanized steel piping and mounted it in. And so far so good. I've done muscle ups on it. I've done hanging work on it. Um, and then a lot of the gymnastics, uh, we do inside. Okay. So like handstand pushups, like everything inside and yeah. So we'll do handstand pushups outside on the side of the house mm-hmm. and I have siding on my house. So every once in a while you catch a heel and like, don't get yeah yep. where you want. But, uh, from an aspect of where I would have expected my fitness level being given what I have it's worked out really well. Yeah. Like it's sort of, it's frustrating in the aspect of like when days it rains, we go and we work out in someone, a member's basement and not having sort of normal circumstances. But I would expect that I've made a lot of gains in this time when I think it would be really easy to slide down the slope. Yeah. No, I hear you. I, I, th- I think, well, I mean, with, with your, you got your own personal programming, which is amazing because it's programmed to you compared to like, you know, oh, I'm doing, I'm doing, um, what is it called? Uh, comp train right now. And it's like, it's, it's programmed for, you know, they're, they're higher up individuals and kind of like the lower individuals, but like, it's not specific f- to me at all. But like, you know, I yeah. just need to work on it. Definitely a couple of things like handstand pushups, 
and obviously other gymnastics stuff because I'm like six six, and so it's a lot harder for me to do those yeah. movements. So I mean, I I would love to do like my own individual program, but it's like, you know, is it worth the money or like where am I gonna go with this? And so, yeah, I think um, like most things, it your goal has to be laid out of like why am I doing this. So with my dreams to be to like go to a sanctional and things like that, um, and diabetes has sort of fueled that too, because that's not an avenue that you see people in who have, you know, I'm going to put in quotes diseases because I'm one of those people that's like diabetes isn't a disease. Um, but it, the only way to really get there effectively like i think you can get there following normal programming but a lot of it has to come down to where were you before you started this Mm -hmm. and the most efficient way for me to get there was to find someone to program for me who was not gonna sugarcoat it and was gonna be like you suck at handstand walking or you need to do you know 50 unbroken pull-ups or whatever it might be um or you need to get better at muscle-ups so you're going to have a day where you just do muscle-ups even though it's going to be super frustrating it will pay off in the end yeah very cool very cool yeah so um i know you 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 wear you still wear a pump right i do okay so how does how does that how does that handle with you doing like the gymnastic movements or doing like any like cross movements has it gotten like pulled off the site as a second pulled off or anything yes so i luckily it stays on for the most part um it'll be that like day two and a half of it being in yeah. that it'll end up all like sweated out or um i'll catch it on something the biggest issue i have is i break clips so the pump clip where it clips on your pants mm-hmm. will like I'll catch a clean or something and the pump will be lined up the wrong way and you'll feel it like snap mm-hmm. and you just hope it holds on long enough for you to stand up. <laughs> yeah. So that's sort of the, the only real issue I run into is like gymnastics wise. I'm pretty good. The clips on the Medtronic pumps hold pretty tight, mm-hmm. but during certain like lifts, like if I'm doing touch and go snatches or something like that, I'll feel it moving and every once in a while it'll come flying off. Yeah. But I would say I'm somewhat impressed with its ability to hold on. Yeah. I I mean, I I don't have a pump or anything like that. So I really don't know, you know, because I always see people when they work out, they're like sites get ripped off like all the time. And, you know, I've never had that situation because I'm on pens the whole since, since I started. So, so it's, uh, I've always been on. So, so have you ever tried, ever thought about doing the Omnipod at all or, I so I tried an Omnipod. It was too big for what I was doing. So I was losing more Omnipods because I sweat a lot. Yeah, and they're heavier, mm-hmm. so they're just like more likely to sort of peel their way off. I also didn't trust myself remembering the PDM yeah. piece mm-hmm. because I would be the type that you know would take a shower, and I know now to like clip my pump back on. But if I didn't have to do that, I could see myself like getting changed and walking out the door. Yeah, completely forgetting. Yeah. So, all right. Yeah. So last last two questions. So um, the first one is, 
what would you say to a new onset, a new new diabetic? I would say, you know, biggest thing, it's not the end of the world. You're going to have a big learning phase. And I think a lot of it is you need to be okay with not being okay for a little while. Um, I would, like, I think I would describe diabetes as like, you know, you're sitting around a campfire and when the campfire gets a little bit too big and it's a little too close to you, but it's not sort of dangerous, but you can't like just walk away from it. Um, I think that's the best way I would describe it. It's sort of like this control that will occasionally get too big and occasionally be small, but you learn as much as you can find out as much as you can from people around you. And then on top of it, if you have the ability to have a support system, that's going to bring you leaps and bounds. So that can be people on Instagram like this, where, you know, we've tossed ideas around to each other or, you know, now that I live with my girlfriend, she's like super big support system. She has learned and had to understand it. So, you know, letting those people around you in because I'm not the type that would normally do that. But I think for the safety of you and for them to be comfortable, it's going to pay off. Um, and the more people know and the more you explain that it's not, you know, the end of the world. And then like when it all boils down to it, having confidence in yourself and knowing yourself is the number one thing. Cool. Very cool. And so where, where can people reach out to you if they have any questions or want to ask you like something? Yeah. So I would say Instagram's probably the best route. Um, typically I would, I know it's frowned upon to throw your phone number onto the internet, so I'm not going to do that. But uh, <laughs> my my Instagram handle is uh, Solo Snyder, and then I'm also on Facebook. So I'll happily you know answer any questions. I've sort of after 16 years of this have been through almost every scenario you could come up with, I imagine. And so if people have questions, or just even if it's like there's kind of that like there's no stupid question because chances are I've thought about it and just never thought to ask anyone. Yeah. So, um, that's usually the best, that's the best way to reach out. And, um, any way I can kind of help people through, um, I'd be happy to. Mm. Now, since you have that one remote coach, uh, you're coaching one person, would you be willing to like do like if anybody has any interest to start like doing personal training through you, would you be willing to give them like programs at all or, Yes. Yeah, so if it's, it's definitely something that I could work out with someone, I think it would, uh, we'd have to make sure we were sort of on the same page, but that being said, um, it's not something I'm against. I think that it'd be really cool to find, you know, help coach someone who is a diabetic or even if they're not a diabetic and they just think, you know, the coaching ideas sound like they line up with their goals, then I would be happy to do it. I think that'd be great. Okay, awesome. Well, dude, thank you so much for being on the podcast. This is I, I I'm I'm glad we're actually finally talking, you know, person to person instead of through like yeah, through DMs and stuff. But yes, thank you so much, and I hope you have a good rest of the day. Perfect. Thank you. All right. See you, man.